0: 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus or through Jesus. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive... And remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. And I do pray, comfort, oh, comfort your people this morning, Father, and speak to his Holy Spirit in Jesus' name, amen. So today, this morning, we come to the third section of this little letter, Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica. Two letters, you know, and we're looking at both of them, and we don't even need an introduction for the second one, because the introduction for the first one works for the second. They were both written very close together, both written probably in about A.D. 50, and written back to this large metropolis, but this fledgling church, about concerns that Paul had for them in the trials, the afflictions they were going through. But also questions they had for Paul. And we don't know rightly if 1 Thessalonians came before 2 Thessalonians, or if 2 Thessalonians actually came first. We're not sure. But again, both written very close together, and both written to answer concerns and questions of the people in that new church. Brand new believers. And so after discussing what we've broken it into three parts, based on the third verse of the first chapter... And we've already looked at the work of faith, about a third of the letter he gets into the work of faith, and then the labor of love, and now we come to this final section in which God provides the basis for the steadfastness of hope. The steadfastness of hope. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 11 verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. Romans 8:24 says for in hope we have been saved but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees but if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Do you hear that? Perseverance and expectancy. And remember we've talked about, those are kind of the attitudes or the exhortations of Paul in this letter. Persevere, young church. Live expectantly. And hope is the substance of that. Perseverance, eagerness, expectancy, these are fed by hope. Without hope, you're not going to persevere. Without hope, you are not expectant for anything. In his famed essay on man, Alexander Pope wrote... Hope humbly then, with trembling pinions soar. Wait the great teacher death, and God adore. What future bliss He gives thee not to know, but gives that hope to be thy blessing now. Hope springs eternal in the human breast. Man never is, but always to be blessed. The soul, uneasy and confined from home, rests and elaborates in a life to come hope. Emily Dickinson, in poem number 254, out of some 1,200 or so poems, she wrote, Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul, and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all, and sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asks a crumb of me. And I love that first line. Hope is the thing with feathers. What does that mean? It means hope doesn't float. Hope flies. Hope lifts us up. It keeps us going when everything seems lost. When you don't feel like you can take another step or go another day, it comforts us when comfort seems far off. Hope is unique to all mankind. It separates us from all other creatures. It elevates us to see beyond our temporary condition. And hope liberates us from our flesh. Because hope takes us out. Hope offers us what flesh can never offer. The only thing that flesh can offer you is ultimately despair. Because the flesh dies. But hope sees beyond. And so we hope for the future. We get our hopes up. We have glimmers of hope, high hopes. We hope for the best. Some cross their hearts and hope to die, although I don't understand that one. (laughs) Others hope against hope. And still others will abandon all hope. But hope is the thing with feathers. In Christ Jesus, hope springs eternal. It is no surprise then that Jesus acted the way Jesus did. Keep your finger in 1 Thessalonians and go back to John chapter 11. You see, Jesus, always filled with hope, always aware of hope, showed up four days late for the burial of Lazarus. He never met a funeral that he liked. He was never on time for a memorial service. I take great comfort in that as a pastor. If I'm ever late, I can point that out. <laughs> but Jesus told his boys in John chapter 11, verse 11 Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Well, now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Duh. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Bold Thomas, T. Diddy, as I like to call him. Keep this in mind. When the Bible compares death to sleep, it is not talking about sleep. It is a euphemism for rest. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But when Jesus says things like our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, it's euphemistic. He is not saying that Lazarus has now drifted out of the state of consciousness and is snoozing away in the tomb. That is not the intention of Scripture, and I will show that to you as we go. But Jesus then finally arrives, four days late, as I said, outside of the village of Bethany, on the eastern face of the Mount of Olives. He's not quite to Bethany yet. He's still a little ways off. When Lazarus' sister Martha hears that Jesus is coming and she runs to Him, and down in verse 21 of John 11, Martha said then to Jesus, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. How often have You said something like that to Jesus? Well, maybe not those exact words, but Lord, if You had only... Why didn't You... How did you let this happen? And that was where Martha's heart was. And Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to Him, I know that He will rise in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I find it interesting that in John's Gospel, seven times Jesus makes an I am statement. And this is number five. Which five being the number of grace in the Bible, that interests me. I am the resurrection and the life. Well, of course, Martha said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yet, and even he who comes into the world, when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher's here. He's calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. And the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying, same thing as Martha, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, And the Jews who came with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid Him? And they said to Him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Why? People have long wondered, why did Jesus of all people, Mr. Hope Himself, why did He weep? Don't you know that Jesus knew what He was about to do? Don't we realize that He came there at that time so that God might be glorified in the miracle that He was about to perform as He was about to raise Lazarus from the dead and yet tears fill His eyes, brim over and pour down His face, Jesus wept. Some say He wept because it was a startling notice of His own impending death and burial. That looking at Lazarus, he was looking as if down the corridor of where he was headed in short order. I don't think so. I think Jesus wept because as the verse prior to it tells us, he was deeply moved. Jesus wept because his heart was broken at the hopelessness around him. As He looked at Mary and Martha, as He looked at the friends gathered there, and they were weeping, it it caused His humanity, His heart to break. And so He wept. But He came four days late to inspire hope. And not just in Bethany. And not just for Mary and Martha and the beloved gathered there. No, Jesus came to inspire hope for all of humanity. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live even if he dies. That's hope. The promise, the guarantee. You may die in the flesh in this world, but you're going to live. Just believe in Me. Trust in Me. I've got this. And then Jesus added this enigmatic statement. And everyone who lives and believes in Me will never die. Do you believe this? Wow. Two groups. Those who die in Christ, who will yet live again, and those who are alive in Christ at the time of His coming, who will never die. A unique group. Not better, not more righteous, not more together than anybody else, but that group just happened to be alive when God says, everybody out of the pool. Time's up. The end of the age of grace has come. Those who die in Christ, however, they not only get to be with Him now, they get to go straight to the front of the line. I mean, I think about these two groups. It used to be that I would say, I want to be in the never-die group. That sounds good to me. I'm still, I still lean that way. I don't have a death wish. I still want the rapture to happen. I still want Jesus to come get me and just take me out. I don't want to have to go through all the other stuff. But, those who die in the flesh in Christ are already with Him. And so there's something in me that says, wait a minute. I want to be with Him. Those who are already with Him, not only are they with Him, but they get to rise first. So on the day of the rapture, totally getting ahead of myself, but when that moment occurs, they're first. And we're going to be in the back of the line going... If, in fact, we are alive at the time. And there's every indication to think we will be. But the Thessalonians had a concern. Remember, they didn't have the 2,000 years of church history and teaching and doctrine and study that we have... They were brand new to this whole thing. They didn't have the Scriptures to pour over other than the Hebrew Scriptures. They had what Paul had taught them. They had perhaps the ability now to begin to search the Hebrew scrolls themselves to understand these things and what Paul had taught. But they didn't have it as easy as we do. Paul told them while he was there in Thessalonica, Jesus is coming, and He's coming quickly, so persevere and expect His soon return. So they were living that way, and yet, since Paul had left, apparently, someone or someones had died. Oh no. You said Jesus was coming. But so and so passed away. What happened to them? Where do they go? And in Second Thessalonians, we'll see even more, they started to think perhaps that the tribulation itself had begun. Right, you're using words like rapture and tribulation and I want to understand what those mean. Good, you're in the right place. And we're going to cover some of this more in depth and I will give more explanation not only this morning but the next couple of Sundays as we go so it's fully understood what we're talking about with each of these terms. Don't let the terms trip you up. But the people in Thessalonica thought perhaps the seven-year wrath of God being poured out on the world, which the Bible tells us is coming, had already begun. What do we do? The the affliction was on the rise, people had died, and now they're they're freaking out about this. They had legitimate concerns, and so this, this new teaching... That Paul sends to them in the letter we call 1 Thessalonians forms the hub of Paul's earliest letter. This is why we've gone back to this so many times over the years. Not only does it form the hub of this letter, but it forms the heart of God for where we're headed, for what is coming, and for what we can have hope in. Verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. He doesn't say you are not to grieve. He just says don't grieve hopelessly. Don't grieve like those who don't understand or don't have the end in sight. Don't grieve that way. And then in verse 18 he says, therefore comfort one another with these words. And so Paul bookends this teaching with hope. Don't grieve like those who don't know. And comfort one another with these words. Profound words of both hope and comfort. And again, it's right to grieve. When we lose loved ones, dear ones, it is right to grieve. Just not hopelessly. Just not in despair. I repeat to you the quote from Charles Spurgeon. I read this a couple weeks back. Tears are permitted to us, but they must glisten in the light of faith and hope. We are not among those who don't know or who despair. Maybe you say, well, I don't know. Good. Again, you're in the right place. Why are so many people in this world hopeless? And the answer is very simple. With no offense intended, they are ignorant. It is ignorance that breeds hopelessness. The word ignorant, uninformed, We do not want you to be uninformed. It is also translated ignorant. It's the word agnoeo. Note that. Agnoeo. It is where we get the word agnostic. And it simply means without knowledge. Well, I'm an agnostic. Well, then you're ignorant. And I don't mean offense by that. That's what the word means. You have chosen not to know. You are sitting in a place without information. And in this case, ignorance is not bliss, it's despair. To not know when you could know? Five times in his letters, Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant. Now all of his letters are about informing the brethren and the sistren. <laughs> all of his letters are about helping us know and understand the Spirit revealing through Paul what's coming, what is, where our faith should be, what it should look like. Not to be a people of ignorance. Christians above all others, when we have this word, have no excuse to be ignorant of the truth. Which is why we pour over the word, and we read and study the word, and we pray in the word, and we seek to have revelation from God, that we don't walk around blind to what's coming. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. Again, he says it five times. First of all, Romans 11.25, I don't want you to be ignorant of Israel's future. A lot of Christians are. Ignorant of the fact that God still has a plan for Israel. That it is running parallel with the church and it's about to break open in ways that haven't been seen for 2,000 years. He has a plan for His chosen ones, Israel. Romans 11.25. Actually, just read Romans 9-11. through You'll get it. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of Israel's past with Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 1. Israel's past with Jesus. Yeah, the fact that he's the one who followed them through the wilderness. That's a stunning thought. And Paul describes that in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, I don't want you, brothers, to be ignorant of spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 1. Which right there tells me that we don't have the right to just discount the spiritual gifts. We need to study and know and understand and apply and receive them. Because we're not to be ignorant of them. He says, number four, we are not to be ignorant of Satan's schemes. 2 Corinthians 2.11 That he is scheming, that he has a playbook, as I've shared with you before, a very thin playbook. But he keeps doing the same message of deceit over and over and over. Don't be ignorant of that. Be aware of it. And then finally, before all these, the very first time, Paul wrote down, I don't want you to be ignorant. It's about the hope of the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians 4. But specifically, we don't want you to be ignorant of those who have fallen asleep. By the way, of what things are most Christians ignorant today? I would submit to you the five things we just shared. The very things that Paul says, don't be ignorant of these things, a large number of Christians don't understand those things. And that's our fault. Because the truth is right here. God did not give us His Word so that we could be sitting on the fence in the dark with agnostic ignorance. He gave us His Word to make us stand in the light with informed faith. Have an informed faith which means your heart is open and your bible is open and you are seeking to know the truth of god don't be uninformed paul says don't be ignorant about those who are asleep and so here we come to this euphemism it's a pagan euphemism originally and throughout the pagan world death was looked at as sleep the pagan view of sleep of death was sleep you die and you slip out of consciousness You die and the whole of the person, soul, body, spirit, all that the person is, goes into the ground or is cremated, either one. That was the pagan view. When the word sleep or asleep is used in scripture, it is euphemistic for death. It does not mean that that's what happens when we die. The biblical view is not sleep, it's rest. And there's a big difference. I can take my rest without going to sleep. I can have a restful vacation and not sleep 24-7 through the whole thing. In fact, I prefer to be awake in rest, to enjoy rest, to kick back and relax. That R&R kind of shalom rest, and that's the biblical view of what happens after a follower of Jesus dies. Not snoozing, but soothing. Not foggy slumber, but restful peace. Jeremiah 6.16, thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus said in Matthew 11.28, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say, and I will put you to sleep. He's not the boring pastor... (laughs) nor is he the almighty anesthesiologist come to me if you're weary I'll put you out no I will give you rest but we have where death is concerned confused rest with REM we have confused sleep with shalom by the way do you know where the term cemetery comes from It's actually a a term from a Latin word that was coined by Christians to refer to graveyards, and it literally means dormitories. Well, I don't know about you, but in my dormitory in college, we got very little sleep. (laughs) Oh, we occasionally rested. (laughs) But sleep was not the thing. Cemeteries, graveyards are, you could call them, the dormitories of the dead. Now, listen, I am not meaning to offend But I can say this with a smile on my face because the truth is the body in the grave or the ashes in the urn are not the person. They are not the person. They are the shell. They are the vehicle. They are the vessel that the person dwelled in in this life. They are not the person. The person you love is not there. They are not dead. They are not sound asleep. And Scripture is absolutely clear on this. Death is not about being unconscious or comatose or frozen in time as if cryogenically waiting for someone to come up with a way to unfreeze you and fix your brain. That is not what happens. We're not waiting to be thawed out or, or, or waked up. And Paul said this absolutely clearly, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 6, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body... We are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body, and to be where? At home with the Lord. At home with the Lord. That is to die in Christ is to leave the body, is spiritually to be at home with him instantaneously and immediately. Paul says we walk by faith, not by not by sight. Why is that important? Because sight tells me the person lying there on the table looks asleep. The person who has died looks asleep, eyes closed, still quiet. They're not there. They're just not there. Bodies in the grave. Spirits at home with Jesus. That's the promise. Amen. And that's why I say right now, and I, I agree with Paul, to live as Christ, to die is gain. To live right now means there's more that I can do, more fruitful labor in the body for Jesus in this world. But to die is gain. Not because I get to go to sleep, but because I get to be with Him immediately in person. Verse 14, for if we believe, and here's the key, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Interesting verse because Paul rarely uses the name Jesus all by itself. Rarely is he that uh, comfortable just speaking the earthly name of Jesus with no connection to it. Usually it's Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. But you will find in the letters of Paul, it is very rare for Paul simply just to say Jesus. So why does he say Jesus here? He literally says it three times. I mean, he says We believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him, and Him is Jesus, those who have fallen asleep, euphemistically, through Jesus. So it's all about Jesus. It focuses on Jesus. Why does Paul just say casually, Jesus, here. Get this. Because the human bodily resurrection of Jesus is the key to our resurrection, our re-embodiment, if you will, and of all those who have died in Him. His resurrection is key to our resurrection. Not that God resurrected, oh, He is, He was God in the flesh, but that His flesh, full bodily resurrection... John gets into this. He says, you've got to believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. The Bible talks about all the resurrection appearances of Jesus and how He revealed, He said to the apostles, look at me, I'm not a ghost. Touch me. Anybody have a piece of fish? He proves to them full bodily resurrection. Why is that so important? Because that's what's promised to you, to me. That our bodies will rise. That if I die before He comes, this body of mine will rise, will be resurrected. And Paul explains that even better in just a moment here. But understand, if not for the resurrection of the Son of Man, Jesus, there would be no resurrection for us. In other words, there would be no hope. Peter gets this. First Peter chapter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus said in John 14:19, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. Revelation one seventeen. John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am the living one, I was dead, dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have, Jesus says, the keys of death and Hades. And you know what? Jesus not only has the keys, He is the key. He is the key to our resurrection, our promise. As Paul writes in Colossians 3, verse 3, You have died and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Alive or having died, you will be revealed with Him in glory. And so Paul says God is going to bring with Jesus those who previously physically died whose spirits are now with Jesus. Verse 15. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And that's the promise. That's the thesis, if you will, of this whole section, that those who have died in Christ They are neither asleep nor are they forgotten. They are with Him right now. I remember being in high school when my grandmother passed away, a freshman in high school, and it was the first person truly close to me that I had known who who died. And I remember at the funeral and I remember weeks and months following that and thinking about it was so much nicer, so much more comforting to think of her as moving about in heaven with Jesus. I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't have a picture for it. But I just kind of accepted it because that's what I wanted to accept. And of course, as I grew older, I would hear people say, well, that's just wishful thinking. No, that is biblical thinking. That is the promise that is what God declares time and time again this is the deal so if you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead then you must believe so will you and so will anyone who has already passed on in Christ they are already with Him it's not wishful thinking it's not just self-fooling comfort you know oh it makes me feel better to no We, we joked around about my second grandmother who passed away this was after we had moved up here A few months after we moved up here, my grandma Irene passed away and my brother and I went back down to do the memorial service. We joked about her jumping from cloud to cloud because she had horrible arthritis in her knees to the point that the last four years or so of her life she could barely walk. She could not go up and down stairs. And she would joke with us about running and dancing with Jesus, you know. And after that funeral, I was able to realize and know she is... She's with it. Otherwise, how could Paul say, to die is gain? But he does. Those who have died in Christ, they are not forgotten. And again, they have a head start. First in line for the resurrection. And let me just share with you all, they ain't missing out on anything here. Have you ever said, Oh, I just, I just wish Grandma could be here right now. Because this meal is so good, and she would have loved it. No. If, if, if you had the ability to, in that moment, snap this person out of their experience with Jesus, bring them down here to share in that wonderful hot dog, I think they'd be a little ticked. Are you kidding me? First of all, it's hot dogs, but secondly, really? You think I would rather be doing this... Now, this side of heaven, that's how we look at it. We think of our greatest experiences here as what we should be experiencing and and wish that they could. No, no. Other way around. Oh, that they know. Oh, that we could be with them in the presence of Jesus. Well, verse 16 for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Great verse. And my friends, this needs a little unpacking. This travel bag, if you will, of verse 16. So let's take it apart. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven. Who is the Lord? Jesus. And I've told you, and I want to repeat to you, anytime you see the Lord, unless it says the Lord God, in the New Testament, the Lord is always Jesus. Always referring to Jesus. He Himself will descend. He's going to come out of heaven. He's going to, as it were, come downward. And He will do so with a shout. And the shout is His. And the shout in the Greek, it's kailousma. It's a loud, literally a bellowed command from a commander to a company. Jesus is going to say something. He's going to shout it out as would a leader of a battalion. He will shout clearly, loudly, an order. What's the order? What's He going to shout? And I personally think that John heard it and revealed it. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, "...after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here!" and I will show you what must take place after these things, come up here. And when Jesus comes, it's going to be as a command. And we're not going to have any trouble responding. In fact, we're going to respond before we even realize we responded. We're going to be with Him so quickly, Paul calls it in the twinkling of an eye, come up here! Boom, we're there. And that was kind of slow, actually. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Then it says, with the voice of the archangel. Now that is not to say that the Lord is the archangel. Now this is another voice. Now speaking as well. So that maybe the second in command. Maybe a lieutenant comes along now. The commander shouts. The lieutenant commander begins barking orders right and left. You to that cloud. You over here. Gather on this spot. I don't know what he's going to say. But we will hear it. The voice of the archangel. He may just be praising God, shouting glory to Jesus as with Jesus' birth. But interesting, Paul says the archangel. Listen, nothing is haphazard in the Scriptures. This is all intentional. And the only archangel that we see even named in the Bible, named three times, is Michael. No other archangel is named. Now we can assume, and we do, that there are other archangels... But even what archangel means, a commanding angel, we see this here, the archangel, a archangel, an archangel, at least mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 4. The only other use of the word archangel is where Jude, in verse 9 of his little letter, refers again to Michael. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 says, "...now at that time Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise." There will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And right there, the angel, Gabriel, is talking to Daniel about Israel. Michael stands guard over Israel. In fact, the only two named angels that we have in the entire Bible, Michael and Gabriel, both are assigned to Israel. So I don't know if the archangel who, who shouts at the time of the, of the rapture of the church of us being called up to meet Jesus, which I know we haven't even gotten to that yet. I don't know if that's Michael or not. Maybe, may not, but we do know that the Michael named in Scripture stands guard over Israel. Because Israel will not pass away. Because God has that promised. We know that Michael will lead the charge against Satan in the final heavenly war. Revelation chapter 12 verse 7 tells us. So again, we don't know if this archangel is him or even what exactly this archangel vocalizes. I mean, it could just be woo
1: <laughs> "Woohoo!"
0: But we will, we will hear this loud and clear, as so the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout with, and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. Now, rest there for a moment. The trumpet of God. Can you imagine the thrill of that blast when we hear it? It will be like no other trumpet sound we have ever heard. It will not be like those in Israel trying to blow the shofar and going... <laughs> It will thrill us to no end. You know, uh, oh, what's his name? Fats Domino found his thrill on Blueberry Hill. (laughs) But blueberry season doesn't last that long, so how thrilling could that really be? I think it was Chris Matthews who felt a thrill run up his leg when he heard... Obama speaking back in 2008. That thrill didn't last very long. It wasn't long before Matthews as a commentator was down on Obama a few years later. This is a thrill that will never end. This is a thrill, honestly, I think we will remember forever the sound of this trumpet blast because it will signal our immediate exit from this age and into eternity. Now when I say into eternity, I'm not talking about vague, esoteric, cloudy eternity out there that we're just going to head on out. No, I'm talking about the span of time. That when we hear the blast of the trumpet, we will rise and in that moment, eternity begins. Forever begins. Death, for you, for me, is not a thing anymore. Can you imagine that? I mean, right now, we live every day with the possibility of death. You wake up with a stomachache and go, this could be it.
1: <laughs>
0: Especially when you're 52. This could be the one that takes me out. <laughs> Never again. The trumpet of God will blast. But there's some confusion about the trumpet of God. In fact... The idea of the trumpet of God, as explained in Scripture, when people get away from Scripture, come up with all kinds of things. So let me clarify just two things for you to understand about the trumpet of God. There are those, maybe some of you, and and if it's you, don't raise your hand because I don't want you to be embarrassed for being wrong, but there there are those who hold a mid-tribulation rapture view. The idea that this tribulation period that will be fully explained in the next few weeks here, this tribulation period that lasts for seven years, that the church actually will not go before it begins, but sometime in the middle, that will be taken out at that point. Where does that idea even come from? Well, primarily... Those who hold this view equate the trumpet that Paul talks about here, the trumpet of God, they equate it with the seventh trumpet of the trumpet judgments in Revelation 8 verses 11. And you're like, oh yeah, the trumpet judgments. Hey, if you haven't studied that, in those chapters, there are three sets of judgment in Revelation. In the second set of judgments, the trumpet judgments... The last trumpet of the trumpet judgment is equated by the mid-tribulationist with this, with the rapture of the church. It can't be. Why? Well, let me show you something. Turn over just for a moment to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation is an easy book to find. Revelation chapter 11 listen to the description of the seventh trumpet of the seven trumpets verse 15 revelation 11:15 then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give You thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who are and who were, because You have taken Your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and Your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward Your your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hail storm. The seventh trumpet of the seven trumpets. Understand this. This is a coronation call. 1 Thessalonians 4 is not a coronation, it is a calling out of ambassadors. So the purpose of this 7th trumpet is very different than the trumpet that Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And also the 7th trumpet here is also, if you study it out, it's also equated with what's called the third woe. The third woe. Which means it comes after the second woe. I was brilliant in math. The third woe comes after. What does that mean? It's deep into the tribulation. It's not midway into the tribulation. It's in the latter half. Deep into the latter half. Very close to the end. More on that next week. The seventh trumpet. Note this most of all. If you look at verse 15 of Revelation 11. The seventh trumpet is sounded by the seventh Angel. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that this trumpet is the trumpet of God. This is not the trumpet of an angel. In the book of Revelation, there are many angels, there's only one God. There are cherubim and seraphim, there is only one Lord and Savior. And so the trumpet that Paul's talking about is a trumpet that belongs exclusively to the Lord God. It is the trumpet of God. And secondly, note this, it's the last trumpet of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not, all be, uh, will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Again, sleep is a euphemism. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. In 1 Corinthians 15, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul draws from a collage of Hebrew scriptures leading up to the last trumpet blast. Go in your Bibles all the way back to Exodus and look at this. Exodus chapter 19. Exodus isn't very hard to find either. Genesis, Exodus, second book, verse 19, or chapter 19, verse 16. Just to give you a little sense of where we are, the people of Israel have finally made it to Mount Sinai. They're gathered there at the base of the mountain. And in verse 16, we're told it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. See, he's not always a still quiet voice. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and when the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, Moses went up. Do you see kind of the parallel picture there? The trumpet sounds, God comes down, and Moses goes up. That's an early picture of the rapture right there. The trumpet sounds, God comes down. Trumpet. If you look it up in the Hebrew, it is shofar. It's the ram's horn. To the ancient Hebrews, it was both the sound of victory and of celebration. It's a trumpet that traditionally is blown at a specific time every year, but at the trumpet sound the Lord came down. The old rabbis called the sound of the shofar here at Mount Sinai in Exodus nineteen the first trumpet. The first trumpet of God. And indeed it is. It's the first time in the scriptures, first mention of a trumpet. Exodus nineteen. The first mention of the blowing of the shofar right there where the trumpet sounds and God comes down and Moses goes up. Are you with me, shofar? <laughs> shofar is so good, I know. Shofar far as we're concerned. The shofar is blown traditionally every year on a specific day called Yom Teruah. You know it as Rosh Hashanah. The day of the trumpet. This year, September 20th. And on into September 21st. One of those two days, it it happens. What do you mean, one of those two days? Well, we don't know the day or the hour. That's how the Jews looked at Yom Teruah. Every day for the month leading up to Yom Teruah, they would blow the ram's horn. Until Yom Teruah itself, which was the coming of the new moon. When the new moon came, what the rabbis did was they watched because it was the new moon. It rose with the sun. And so they watched to see when that first sliver of the moon would become apparent. And when they could see that first sliver of moon, they blew the trumpets. That could be this year on September 20th based on our calendar. Or it could be on September 21st because remember the Jews count from evening to evening. Why do they blow the trumpet every day leading up to it and then blow the trumpet on that day? They're saying, look, be ready, be prepared. Here comes the day of the trumpet. Why? What happens after the day of trumpet? They call it the awesome days. Days of mourning. Days of repentance. Days of sorrow. Leading finally to Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And it's so interesting to me that what happens is the Jews will say to each other, even today in the month leading up to, the, to Yom Teru, to Rosh Hashanah, they will say, may your name be written in the book of life before the awesome days. So the evening of September 20th, by the way, put that on your calendar. It's a Wednesday night. We're going to have a day of trumpets here that night. We're going to have a little celebration, a little fun. We're going to talk about that specific feast in Israel, that celebration. We're going to celebrate it together. Leslie's going to have the kids working on little shofars. And we're going to go out in the parking lot and we're going to blow. It's going to be fun. You know, we, we realize, side note, we, we're talking about this as a staff, how often we celebrate things in the fall and we never think about the Feast of Israel. Well, why will we celebrate the Feast of Israel? Because they're always to anticipate what's coming. And the spring feasts, Passover, you know, Shavuot, Feast of Unleavened Bread, they've all been fulfilled. The fall feasts have not. So we're going to enjoy that together. Put that on your calendar, September 20th of this year. But it's Tishri, the day of the trumpet, Yom Teruah. And because of that and many other things that we'll get into, a lot of prophetic scholars believe that on Yom Teruah, Rosh Hashanah, that's the day of the rapture. That's when the church is going to get called home. That's why I get really excited every single fall. And a little depressed when November rolls around. No, I I don't. Actually, you need to understand that just because fall comes and goes doesn't mean that that's it until the next year. Don't be caught flat footed. What you want is the sunroof opened and your shoes unlaced so you can go quickly. <laughs> Leviticus twenty three, twenty four says, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first of the month you shall have a note this a rest. A reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation it was blow the trumpet and rest how many of you blow a trumpet to go to sleep
1: <laughs>
0: hang on honey i, I just I, i'm tired but i just want to make sure i sleep well
1: <laughs>
0: it signals rest has come zachariah 9:14 the lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning the lord god will blow the trumpet and will march in the storm winds of the south these pictures of God blowing the trumpet, the first trumpet in Exodus 19. And then every year annually, Israel would blow the trumpets. And then in Zechariah, this prophetic word of God blowing a trumpet. Now, that was a specific prophecy, Zechariah 9.14, of the overthrow of the Greeks by the Maccabees, but it was only partially fulfilled in that it was a type of God blowing the trumpet to come. The sons of Korah wrote in Psalm 47, verse 5, God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Wait a minute. You said the trumpet sounds and the Lord comes down. But Psalm 47, if I heard you right, says that the Lord ascends with the sound of a trumpet. Oh, you're good. Thanks for pointing that out. Psalm 47 is a psalm of the millennial kingdom. It's a psalm that looks forward to that time. And I will just share this. This is after the rapture when the tribulation is over and the kingdom has begun. And Jesus... Remember, Jesus is the one who has both ascended and descended. He's done both. He knows the way. He's very clear. He doesn't need Google to get from heaven to here. He knows how to do it. And He knows how to get back. He doesn't get lost on the way there. Jesus, I believe, during the Millennial Kingdom, whenever He goes from New Jerusalem back to Heaven, I believe worldwide we'll hear a trumpet sound. Up, oh, Jesus is going.
1: Up, oh, He's coming back.
0: And so there is a trumpet blast when He ascends as well as when He descends. But this, again, is the last trumpet. The last trumpet of God signaling the end of the church age and this world as we know it. doesn't mean more trumpets won't sound after the fact or on into eternity. It just means that this is the last trumpet for what God's doing in this dispensation, in this age, at this time. The first was for Israel. The last is for the church. In this beautiful picture, the trumpet sounds... The Lord comes down and Moses goes up. The trumpet sounds, Jesus comes down, and the church goes up. Then what happens? At the end of verse 16, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That is not a comfort for those who have already gone on to be with the Lord. They're comforted. They're with Him. They have a bead on eternity that we yet do not understand. That is a comfort for us. It is a comfort that we understand that when we lose a beloved in Jesus, that they are with Him and they will come to Him first. They will rise first. Now you might say, okay, wait a minute, now I'm really confused. Because back in verse 14, it says God will bring with Him, with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. But now Paul says in verse 16, and the dead in Christ will rise. Now, you Bible students know we've looked at this before many times. Not to be callous again, but please hear me on this. Bodies in the grave, spirits at home with Jesus. And so, it's perfect in explanation. The Lord will bring with Him those who have died in Him. That is the spirits who are at home with Jesus right now. He will bring with Him, very specifically He says, and the dead will rise and the dead if we were translating it perhaps a little more harshly but accurately it would be the corpses will rise because the word dead is necros he will bring with him those who have died that is the spirits those, the person and the necros, the dead will rise first and you might say dude, that's like walking dead stuff that's a little disturbing twinkle of an eye it's going to happen so fast, we won't even see it happen until we're all there. But why? Why do it this way? Why Why raise the dead? Why not just, you know, I mean, they're already with them. What's that all about? Why is that important? Just as you and I who are alive will be changed from mortal to immortal in the resurrection, so they will be changed to Immortality, their bodies raised, their spirits rejoined, re-embodied, if you will, and immortalized right there in the twinkling of an eye. Because God has shown us in Jesus that it is full bodily resurrection. I know what some of you are thinking. You mean I'm stuck with this? Glorified. Perfect. Perfect. If you could look out a decade and say, okay, if I went to the gym every year and I did every kind of correct diet from South Beach to GAPS to high protein, if I could inject my body in everything that would make it awesome, well then, yeah, I'd be okay with this tank. We can't do that. but God is going to glorify perfect. You're not going to look at yourself and go, oh well, (laughs) <laughs> guess I'll make do <laughs> nor will you be looking at other people going that's hardly fair
1: <laughs>
0: we will be glorified and that's the whole purpose of this spirit and body we are trying like God we are soul, spirit and body same with those who have passed away soul and spirit are with God bodies in the ground Body looks like it's asleep. Soul is not. And so this instantaneous thing takes place. It's wonderful. And by the way, let me just say, for anyone concerned about cremation, because this question always comes up when we talk about this. Well, if the bodies are rising out of the tomb, what about those who have been cremated? You think God doesn't know where every molecule is? You think God doesn't know how to put people together in glorification? Do you think that in the Holocaust, God said, man, I really wish we could do something for them. Mm-hmm. Do you think at 9-11, where all the people who were in the towers that came down, and who were literally cremated in that horrific terror attack, do you think God is just like, oh well. No. God knows where everyone is. God keeps perfect track. Verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And that's it. The rapture of the church. We will be caught up. This is the catching up to all we could ever possibly hope for. Caught up, harpazo in the Greek, raptus in the Latin, where we get the word rapture in the first place, and it means to seize or to carry off by sudden force, and it indicates a massive power. I mean, think about how much jet fuel it takes to get a 747 off the runway loaded with people. And God's going to bring every believer alive in Christ in that moment to him in the twinkle of an eye. That's power. That is a great seizing. That is the rapture. And suddenly in this realization, the hope of Jesus given to Mary and to Martha and to all humanity comes rushing in. That we who live and believe in Jesus will never die. Do you believe this, Jesus said. If you're alive at that time, you're just going to go up. Everyone alive in flesh, at the sounds of the shout and the trumpet blast, will be caught up together with all those who have gone on before in Jesus. What a homecoming. John 14, verse 2, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now listen, we're almost done. Isn't it interesting that Paul does not describe where we're going? In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, he simply says, we will caught up to the clouds, to meet the Lord Jesus in the air. All He gives us as far as location is air and clouds. Up that away. Over yonder. He doesn't describe anything beyond that. I think that's wonderful. Alexander Pope, he described hope with trembling pinions. Emily Dickinson was right. Hope is the thing with feathers. That we will soar, even the sorest of hearts will soar in that moment. And Paul says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let me answer a quick question for you. What's heaven going to be like? Quick question. (laughs) The Bible gives us soaring, beautiful, remarkable pictures of heaven. You can read about it. Read Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10. Right, Jake? You just taught that to our high school group and junior hires. Wait, wait, they're reading Ezekiel? Yes. (laughs) Read Revelation 21 and 22. You want a beautiful picture of, of the future, new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth. The Bible talks about that. But please hear me on this. The more I know Jesus, the less I care about my future digs. The more I know Him, I'm not concerned about my heavenly dormitory or my domicile. The final destination is not the point. Neither is the flight home. In this comforting teaching, Paul avoids all geographical and locational language. And the only thing on Paul's radar is being with Jesus forever. I don't care where he is. I just want to be there. I don't care if he's on earth. I want to be there. If he's in the heavens, I want to be there. If he's in Jerusalem, I want to be there. If he's on the beaches of Maui, I want to be there. (laughs) It doesn't matter where Jesus is, where He goes, what He does. I want to be there. And that's the only thing Paul's concerned with. How does he describe it? He says in 2 Timothy 4.8, In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all who have loved what heaven looks like. No. All who have loved His appearing. I'm not even looking forward to going to heaven. I'm looking forward to going to Jesus. To being with Him in His presence. Paul says, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Jesus says that where I am, there you may be also. Comfort is known best not in a place, but in a person. You may draw some degree of comfort out of walking in the door at the end of a long day. You may draw some degree of comfort out of kicking your feet up at the campsite and relaxing. But true comfort is always found in another person. And in this case, in the person of Jesus Christ, there is no greater hope.